of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So we have no champagne this morning and no party hats. And Robert and the choir, to the best of my knowledge, are not going to lead us in all blames on. But we've come to the end of another church year. To mark the occasion, today is celebrated as Christ the King Sunday. It's still a relatively new observance in the life of the Episcopal Church. And it's a way to emphasize the transition from the long season after Pentecost to the new church year, to the new Advent season. And as Reverend Julia preached a couple of Sundays ago, it might be a useful spiritual practice uh, to make resolutions for the new church year, and I'll share mine at the end of the sermon. On recent Sundays, we've heard some challenging gospel readings involving exclusion and punishment. We heard about foolish bridesmaids being shut out of a wedding banquet and of a foolish servant being cast into the outer darkness where we are told there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it climaxes, those readings climax today in a vision of the Last Judgment in which Christ appears enthroned as a king, a king dispensing justice, and reward, with rewards for the sheep and punishment for the goats who are sent off to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You could say that I first preached on this text in 1982, when I was an undergraduate in Texas, I was taking a sophomore-level philosophy class, and when it came time to study ethical theories, my professor asked various students to make presentations based uh, from the perspectives of their religious traditions. I was one of the students chosen for the task. And I based my talk on this gospel lesson. I was eager to show the progressive side of Christianity to my friends and my classmates, many of whom were more interested in Karl Marx than in the Bible. When I read this gospel text back then, I focused entirely on what it teaches about our responsibility to the most disadvantaged, to the homeless to the hungry, to those in prison. And it also exemplifies Christ's identification with the poor and with the oppressed. But looking back today, I see that I was blind to half the story. I saw only the beauty and not the terror. It never even occurred to me at that time to ask myself, what about the goats? Do they really deserve their faith? Texas has often been called the buckle of the Bible Belt, and growing up, I was swimming in a sea of apocalyptic expectations. 
Hal Lindsey's book, some of y'all might remember it, The Late Great Planet Earth, uh, hit the paperback bestseller list in 1973. In the movie version, a pseudo-documentary narrated by Orson Welles, of all people, was released in theaters in 1978, and it was a cultural phenomenon. Even folks outside the fundamentalist churches went to see it, because if Orson Welles was lending his incomparable voice to Hal Lindsey's ideas, could they be dismissed so easily? Before I went to college, I was surrounded at school and in my neighborhood with people who believed in a very literal hell and were in a perpetual state of anxiety about their faith in the afterlife. Prominent fundamentalist churches in my town were broadcast on local TV, and the preaching seemed to focus overwhelmingly on divine punishment for immorality, especially sexual immorality. And to add to that general anxiety about punishment, there was an atmosphere of expectation that Jesus was coming back soon and that time was very short to get right with God. Though it was all around me, I wasn't part of that culture and did not share that expectation. My family was Episcopalian, and I, a bit smugly perhaps, rejected any belief in a literal hell or that the end of the world was imminent. And yet, I was friends with many people who did have such beliefs, and even if I sometimes argued with them, I also had much in common with them. They did not reject me because I didn't share their beliefs, and I did not reject them. Just a couple of years later, attending college just a few miles from the neighborhood where I grew up, I was in a bubble, though I didn't realize it at the time. I was in an environment which that larger Bible Belt society didn't seem to enter. My friends and classmates either had a liberal faith or no faith at all. And when I was standing in front of that university classroom in 1982, I never considered that the story of the sheep and the goats, which I then saw only as an eloquent statement of radical hospitality and expansive generosity, might have a cool side. In retrospect, I'm sure that some of my classmates were feeling compassion for the goat. Now, there's an undeniable appeal to apocalyptic thinking. It can arise out of a commendable thirst for justice. We've been understandably preoccupied by the horrendous events in the Middle East over the past seven weeks. But there are other places in the world where terrible violence is taking innocent lives and creating new refugees. And it is, frankly, doubtful that the perpetrators of such violence will ever face any sort of earthly justice. And yet we want to see innocent suffering vindicated and things made right. An apocalyptic image like the parable of the sheep and the goats can powerfully express our hope 
that God will wipe away all tears and bring about a restoration of all things, the promise and expectation of the upcoming Advent season. But apocalyptic thinking can also appeal to the darker side of our nature. This will be my first Advent at Trinity, so I don't know if we'll be singing Charles Wesley's magnificent hymn, Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending, Robert's Nodding His Head. So we've all sung that hymn before. It is truly magnificent. But who can forget verse 2, which imagines Christ's persecutors deeply wailing, and it's repeated three times. And why shouldn't they be wailing? They've done a grievous wrong, and now they're confront, confronted with imminent retribution. And why can't we enjoy at least a little bit the mental image presented in the hymn of the bad guys wailing? Must we begrudge ourselves a little bit of schadenfreude as we contemplate the terror of the evildoers as Christ descends in majesty a thousand, thousand saints attending him. No less an authority than St. Thomas Aquinas, the most influential theologian in medieval Christendom, taught that one of the pleasures enjoyed by the saints in heaven was observing the suffering of sinners in the other place. In America today, it is said, people sort themselves geographically according to their religious and political beliefs. Under this theory, folks are much less likely than they once were to develop close relationships with people who don't share their foundational beliefs. And whether they are consciously channeling St. Thomas Aquinas or not, there are many people in our country today who take pleasure when disaster strikes a part of the country they view as ideologically hostile. This really happens. Some on the conservative side of the political ledger might find themselves feeling that California somehow deserves its fires and mudslides. And when Hurricane Harvey hit my home state in 2017, causing massive flooding, destruction of property, and loss of life, I heard liberal folks, like me, expressing the opinion that Texas was getting what it deserved. That still hurts. Apocalyptic thinking by its very nature sorts people into good guys and bad guys, into those who are going to heaven and those going to hell. And of course, in today's gospel, into sheep and goats. So, while such thinking can give us powerful images of God's plan to put this broken world back together, it has to be approached with caution and with self-examination. Much less known than St. Thomas Aquinas in her own day, and basically rediscovered in the 20th century as a great teacher in her own right, the medieval mystic Julian of Norwich struggled with the tension between God's love and God's justice. She wrote about it this way. I ought and had to see and recognize that we are sinners, that we do many evils that we ought to stop doing and leave undone many good deeds that we ought to do. For this we deserve pain, blame, 
and wrath. And notwithstanding all this, Julian continues, I saw in truth that our Lord was never angry and never will be. For He is God. He is goodness, life, truth, love, and peace. His power, His wisdom, His charity, and His unity do not allow Him to be angry. So in these words, you see that Julian was able to hold in tension, in tension, both propositions at once. That God requires justice for our sins, and at the same time is not angry or wrathful, and indeed in her view cannot be angry, even if anger might seem to be a righteous response to uh, an evil situation. A few days ago, the Episcopal Bishop of Jerusalem, Hosan Naum, uh, who's Palestinian, had a meeting over Zoom with our presiding bishop, Michael Curry. Among other things, and among other prayers that he asked for, Bishop Hosam asked that people pray for, quote, openings for conversation with those whose views differ from ours, close quote. That seems at first like a small thing, especially given the extreme suffering that's happening in the Middle East right now. But when you consider those harsh divisions between people, even in our own country, that ideological sorting into sheep and goats, and of course it's a matter of your perspective whether you're a sheep or a goat, it's clearly essential, this thought of Bishop Hosea. And so that's going to be my resolution and my spiritual practice for this new upcoming season of Advent not only to pray for such openings for conversation, but to look for them, and when I see them, to try to seize them. And I don't anticipate this is going to be an easy thing to do. Whatever spiritual practice you may decide to follow, may this coming Advent season draw us all closer to God. Amen.